Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone, I hope you're well. To help support the making of this podcast, Sign up to my Patreon site and for a small fee you get to show your support and you get exclusive access to new videos every week. Vodcasts, as I believe they're called. And they're packed with history and commentary and all sorts of other good things besides. It's called Neil Oliver on Patreon and it would be great to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. I know I've got nothing to fear from you because you are my people and I am your queen. It's, oh, come on. Just great. In this podcast, we're stirring a nation to arms. After Mary, Queen of Scots, lost her head to the executioner's axe, a clear and present danger rose in continental Europe. Travelling to Tilbury, Elizabeth I stood before her troops to deliver one of history's great speeches. She found the words to put steel resolve into their hearts as Sir Francis Drake set sail to meet a determined and powerful force bent on conquest, the mighty Spanish Armada. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil, in the last episode we climbed aboard one of the most famous ships in history and set sail into a new world. Where are we now? We're at one of the pivotal points in English history listening to a great leader deliver a speech that showed her true class, a rousing address that put firm determination into the very souls of the soldiers she was calling upon to defend the nation. We're at Tilbury Fort to hear Queen Elizabeth I's legendary speech. Our love letter this week is from Tilbury Fort, which is on the Thames at Tilbury in Essex. It's directly opposite Gravesend. 
there's a ferry and, and if you go across and then walk for, I don't know, it's about a 15 minute walk from where the ferry comes in, you come to Tilbury Fort uh, and, it, and it's quite an incongruous looking thing. It's quite obviously military, but it smacks of Second World War or something, the, the way it looks. That's the most recent iteration of a fort that was first put in place by Henry VIII. It goes back a long way. It, its roots, its historical roots are pretty deep. And it goes back in time. I suppose everyone knows about Henry VIII divorcing his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, who was his big brother's widow. His big brother was supposed to be the king and then died young. And so Henry VIII became king and he also married his brother's widow, Catherine of Aragon. But then, famously, because he wanted to have a, a boy child and he, he wasn't having any success with Catherine of Aragon, he wanted to divorce her and marry Anne Boleyn. And in doing that, in falling out with Catherine of Aragon, in splitting from her, or seeking to split from her, he fell out with all sorts of people in Europe. He fell out with the Pope, and he fell out with Catherine's nephew, who inconveniently happened to be Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. <laughs> Fairly controversial person to fall out with. So Henry got into trouble, and he learned that Charles V had struck an alliance with France, and he feared... Henry feared invasion from France and he particularly feared invasion via the Thames. The Thames is a kind of a, an open door into England, into London. So he, he built the fort. He built the first fort at, at Tilbury and nothing came of it. There was no, there were guns put in place. It was a fairly primitive looking thing that Henry built, uh, ditches around a, a, a brick blockhouse, some guns, but none of it was ever used in anger. The French didn't try to invade at that point and the whole thing just blew over. Kings and queens thereafter thought it was worth fortifying the Thames. And so there was always thereafter a, a fort at Tilbury. So that's where we are. That's where the love letter comes from, Tilbury Fort. But I should really make clear that this one is, is partly inspired by a book that I have, in fact, already mentioned in the context of the love letters. But it's a book that, you know, every now and again you read something that if it doesn't change your life it just forever afterwards alters the way you look at the world. If you're lucky. I mean, I don't suppose maybe everybody has that experience, but I've had various reading experiences where a book has changed the way I've thought about things. And one of them is written by a writer called Sam Keane, and it's called Caesar's Last Breath, the epic story of the air around us. And I mentioned it before when the love letter was about the Alfred Jewel, that, that gorgeous little golden Anglo-Saxon piece. And I mentioned it then because the idea of Caesar's last breath, something that I hadn't known and had not even thought about, but Sam Keane alleges that when Caesar lay dying on the floor of the Senate with the knives in his back from Brutus and the rest, his last breath or the molecules thereof as he exhaled for the last time, those molecules didn't go anywhere. They remained in the world just floating floating around, ready to become part of something else. So that hypothetically, a molecule from Caesar's last breath could be in your room with you now. And you, you might be just about to breathe it in. So that something that was briefly part of Caesar might briefly be part of you, even after all this time. And it's not just Caesar's last breath, obviously, it's everything. So it's the exhalations of dinosaurs, it's Cleopatra's perfume. You name it, these molecules are just out there being recycled and coming and going. 
But I mentioned it in the context of the Alfred Jewel because within the gold, there's a piece of rock crystal on top of a cloisonne enamel representation of a figure. And I've wondered if molecules of that Anglo-Saxon world might be trapped between the rock crystal and the, and the enamel. It's just something in my imagination ever since I read that book. Now, if you go to Tilbury Fort, there's a Tudor jetty down on the Thames. So down in front of the fort, and if you go down onto the Thames at low tide, say, when the tide is out and the water's low, you can't help but notice a kind of a lopsided, higgledy-piggledy wooden jetty, you know, emerging from the water. And it's obviously seen better days. But the fact is, it's Elizabethan. Wow. Or older. It's Tudor. So it would have served the fort at Tilbury. It would, it would have been a, the means by which boats coming and going, barges and other vessels coming to Tilbury Fort would have let people off at this jetty. Wow. It's preserved the way it is. I mean, it looks, you know, pretty battered and worn, covered in Thames mud slime and, and all the rest of it. It's seaweedy. So this, this jetty, it's obviously... You know, it's it looks it looks old, it looks dilapidated, um, but it has survived for all of these centuries, be, partly because of the nature of Thames mud. You know about the mudlarks, the men and women that have, that are allowed to go and down on, onto the riverbank and they find things preserved in the mud, yeah. Roman sandals and you know medieval knickknacks and all the rest of it, and it's because of the anaerobic qualities of Thames mud the anaerobic nature of the slimy grey mud of the Thames, the sediment there, it inhibits the lives of the kind of bacteria that normally take care of the processes of decomposition. So things that would normally rot and break down and disappear, when they're trapped in Thames mud, like sort of shrimps in aspic, time stops for them. The bacteria doesn't form, and so the things don't, break down. The elegant processes of decomposition are stopped in their tracks and things last. So things like Roman leather, for example, or, or textiles from hundreds of years ago, they, they just are preserved. And the Thames mud has done the same thing for the Tudor jetty. Although obviously it's not completely submerged in the mud all the time, but it, it's kind of given a, a mud bath twice a day by the rising and falling of the tides. And it, it's been enough to preserve, to stretch out the lifetime of these timbers it messes with my sense of time, the idea that you can go to Tilbury and you can walk down onto the riverbank of the Thames at low tide and you can go and stand on timbers that were walked upon by people in the Tudor period. You just can't believe that it would... That that wood would last that long in, in water. I, I know, and, and you, would, you would think that somehow you would think it being wet all the time would make it rot, but it, it doesn't. And, and so, you know, honestly, go and see it. I mean, just go and see this thing and know that it's been there for all of that time. And the reason I'm sort of coming at this from various kind of convoluted paths, but that idea of Caesar's last breath has stuck in my head and of course, for anyone who's interested in Elizabeth I's adventures, they will associate her with the Spanish Armada. And the background to the Spanish Armada is, is quite complicated, but there's, there's probably a relatively short way through it, a bit of a summary. Elizabeth was Protestant, 
Because of Henry, England had gone through a, a religious reformation and had turned away from Catholicism, more or less. And by, by Elizabeth's time, she was Protestant. And that put her at daggers drawn with the crowned heads of Europe, or some of them, who were Catholic, notably the Spanish King Philip II. Elizabeth had annoyed everyone in many ways. She was seen as illegitimate. The Catholic royalty of Europe, for whom this was a convenient excuse, said because Henry had tried to divorce or had divorced Catherine of Aragon and then remarried, well, multiple times, they believed that every subsequent marriage was illegal. That he was married once, and as far as they were concerned, he had never divorced Catherine. And so the children, like Elizabeth, were illegitimate. They were bastards, and therefore illegitimate to sit on the throne. And so her very presence, the presence of this illegitimate Protestant queen on the English throne, was a thorn in the side for those who had reasons to take offence at such a presence, one of them being King Philip II of Spain. Now, King Philip of Spain had been married to Mary Tudor, Elizabeth's half-sister, Catherine of Aragon's daughter. So, when Henry VIII died, he was succeeded, first of all, by his son, Edward. Edward didn't live for long. He died, and he was succeeded by Mary Tudor. She was Catholic, so England had a Catholic queen again for a while. Now, Mary Tudor was married to Philip II of Spain, so when Mary died, it was very inconvenient for Philip because he lost that possibility of being the King of England, and Mary Tudor was succeeded by Protestant Elizabeth. Now, Philip tried to marry Elizabeth. He suggested that she convert to Catholicism, in fact. Elizabeth wouldn't do that, and so the marriage never came to pass. And so Philip was angry and upset about this rebuke from this woman. Elizabeth also had a long-running dispute with Mary, Queen of Scots, who was Catholic. And for the last 19 years of Mary's life, Mary was a prisoner of Queen Elizabeth. And she was executed in the Great Hall of Fotheringay Castle in Northamptonshire on the 8th of February 1587. The execution after 19 years, it was like a final solution to the Scottish problem. She had finally done away with this rival, this, this thorn in her side. But the execution shocked the world. For one queen to, to order the execution of another was scandalous. It's a, it's a regicide. It's the killing of a queen and it's not supposed to happen. And it fell into the lap. It was convenient for Philip II of Spain, who had hoped that one day Mary, Queen of Scots, would succeed or replace Elizabeth on the throne of England because she was legitimate as far as he was concerned and she was Catholic. And so with the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, his last hope or second to last hope of seeing a Catholic monarch in England again was dashed. And so in 1588, he launched the Spanish Armada with the hopes, frankly, of replacing Elizabeth on the throne himself. If he couldn't have any other Catholic monarch on the English throne, he would jolly well polish that seat himself with his own backside. So he puts together the fleet of ships and they launch in 1588 with the intention of invading England. And there's thousands of troops involved. There are thousands of troops on landing craft ready to come across from the Low Countries. 
but it's predicated upon, it's dependent upon the success of the Spanish Armada knocking out the English Navy. So the fleets meet in the English Channel, the English Navy and the Spanish Armada, and there's a bit of fighting, but it's fairly inconclusive. And as most people know, what really deals with the Spanish Armada is a storm. Bad weather kicks up and the Spanish end up on the wrong side of it and they can't get back to Spain by the most direct route and instead they have to go up the east coast of England, round the top of Scotland and round the outside of Ireland before they can get back to Spain. And the storm keeps on battering them and most of the ships are lost and most of the sailors. So it's really the weather that deals with the Spanish Armada. And as far as the English are concerned, it's as though God himself whipped up a storm, a Protestant storm, to drive away the the naughty uh, Spanish Catholics. So that's really what deals with the imminent threat. But before that matter is settled, while there is still everything to play for, while the ships are still out there and it's all still unknown, there's a great deal of stress in London because there's this looming possibility that they'll, they'll waken up and look out of their windows and the Spanish Armada will be sailing up the Thames. And so 20,000 English troops are put on standby who will be the last line of defence. If the landing craft come across, if they manage to make landfall and they unload, they disembark all the Spanish troops, there's going to be an invasion. So there's 20,000 troops on standby and Elizabeth goes to rally them at Tilbury. They're all gathered at Tilbury Fort And she goes to show them their queen, to show them that she's with them and to put some backbone into them. And for any fans of Elizabethan history, the speech that Elizabeth makes at Tilbury is the legend. There's all sorts of descriptions that you'll find of of what she was looking like, how she appeared to her troops. Basically, she appeared clad in white a white fur dress and a a silver breastplate, you know, armoured breastplate and a white hat and she's on a white horse. That's how she appears. But first of all, she arrives via the Tudor jetty at Tilbury. So she arrives by barge, okay, and she steps down onto those timbers that are still there. That's That's how she came to Tilbury. And from there, she was mounted on her horse in all her finery and she then came among the men and in a great show of bravery and class really she had just a small retinue of people with her now there's 20,000 men there and it's widely rumoured that there are Spanish assassins planted in the crowd to kill her to deal with the Queen there and then so in this great uh, show of bravado and class She comes among them with just a tiny bodyguard and she jumps down from her horse and she addresses them. These big, hairy-arsed English warriors that are all gathered around her. And she gives this speech and I'll read it. So bear in mind that she's been told that it's a great danger to her to even be there. So she says, My loving people, we have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. But I assure you, I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself that under God, 
I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects, and therefore I am come amongst you as you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and my people my honour and my blood even in the dust. I know I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which, rather than any dishonour shall grow by me, I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already for your forwardness you have deserved rewards and crowns, and we do assure you in the word of a prince they shall be duly paid you. In the meantime, my lieutenant general shall be in my stead, than whom never prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject. Not doubting, but by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp and your valour in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over those enemies of my God, of my kingdom and of my people. She stands and delivers this. The speculation is that she wrote the words herself. Historians have agreed that there's enough reference to other forms of words that she used in other places at other times that the chances are that that monologue that she gives at Tilbury Fort, that, that's her, that's, that's Elizabeth speaking from the heart. And as nothing else did, it established her legend. She was already well into a long reign at that point. She was good Queen Bess, but as nothing else, that appearance at Tilbury and those words delivered to those men established the legend of Queen Elizabeth. And they also established nationhood for the English in a way that it had never existed before. By reminding them that they were effectively, you know, to use sort of modern parlance, all in it together, that from the Queen down to the common fighting foot soldier, you know, they were all in it together. You know, it's all very Henry V Agincourt. It's all about, I'll be there. Whatever happens, I'll be right at your side. And ever after, England and the English had a sense of themselves as a people and a nation. Previously, the crowned heads of Europe, they didn't so much manage states as landed estates. It was really all about land holdings and property. They didn't really think about England and Spain and France. They thought about their kingdoms and the estates that they held as the kind of ultimate landowner. But there at Tilbury, in the words that she used and in that performance that she gave, she created something for the first time, which was a sense of England and Englishness for the English. And to get back to that idea of Caesar's last breath, I've been at Tilbury a few times. I've even stood for the TV cameras and delivered that, <laughs> delivered that speech. And I challenge anyone to go there and to be in the vicinity of that Tudor jetty, the boards that she walked upon that day, and not at least speculate that some molecules of her breath, molecules that left her lungs and her lips as she delivered those words, might still be 
in the air around Tilbury, waiting to be breathed in again. And it's that mere possibility that makes a visit to Tilbury Fort and the Tudor jetty there so unbelievably magical. The words of that speech, spoken a long time ago, but they are still stirring in lots of ways, aren't they? Yeah, there's something that leaps out at me in the very early on in this in this speech, when she's challenging anyone to think that she wouldn't have confidence to stand among her people. You know, she's saying, my advisors think this is a dangerous thing to do, but I know better. I know that you are my people. And pretty much, I know that you love me and you won't hurt me. And this line about, let tyrants fear. Let tyrants fear. Because it's dangerously easy for powers that be, for governments, to slip into ruling by fear. It happens in the blinking of an eye. A a leader can go from being someone that the people want to follow because they believe that person to be worth following. That can swing in the blink of an eye to the leader being afraid of the people and the people being afraid of the leader. That's a very dangerous tightrope that leaders walk all the time. You know, so I look at that line, let tyrants fear. You think, yeah, well, you either set out to be the kind of leaders that people love and welcome among them and treat as as being of themselves, or you establish yourself that someone who's only got power because the people are afraid of you, or they're afraid of what you represent. And yes, after all those hundreds of years, there's still a reason, there's a value in reading those words so that the powers that be can be reminded about the danger of slipping towards tyranny. I love the fact that she puts a bit of showbiz into it as well, you know, with the horse and the... It's brilliant. You know, you've, we think, we think, you know, we think that sort of public relations and, and that kind of stage-managed uh, exercise, you know, we, we think that's... We kind of invented that, or it's Hollywood or something. It's a, a 20th century creation, but it's not. That sense of how to put on a show... And she knows that she's got to not just be the queen, but look like a queen. Even more, she's got to look like some kind of avenging angel. She is the virgin queen, never been touched by the hand of man. And there she appears amongst these big brawny warriors, clad in white and ermine, with white feathers in her hat, with a silver breastplate and upon a white horse. She appears and then she jumps down from her horse and there she is in that place of potential danger and she says, let tyrants fear. I know I've got nothing to fear from you because you are my people and I am your queen. Oh, come on. Just great. majestic, world-famous stage built by our geological past or the mighty Finn McCool. 
a fittingly dramatic location to witness the destruction of a proud and powerful invasion fleet. A ship bristling with the latest weapons of war, full of treasure, gold chains and coins and wonderful jewellery. A final act played out in a tempestuous maelstrom off the Irish coast. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get exclusive access to new and exclusive videos every week, vlogcasts packed with history and commentary, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production by Althorpe Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.